Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. Nias Press, our very own in-house publisher, recently published a volume entitled Electoral Reform and Democracy in Malaysia, a 2023 book, which is edited by Helen Ting and Donald Horowitz. And I'm delighted today to be joined by both of the editors to discuss their new book. Welcome, Helen and Don, to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Helen Ting is an associate professor at ICMAS at UKM, the National University of Malaysia, while Donald Horowitz is James B. Duke Professor of Law and Political Science Emeritus at Duke University. This important and highly topical new edited collection contains 11 chapters in total, covers a wide range of issues, and it features both Malaysia-based and internationally located scholars. So maybe we can start off with an opening question. How did electoral reform and democracy in Malaysia, this multi-author project come about and how has the book evolved over time? Maybe I should start since I initiated it. I think when we, I thought of the need for some research on this, the electoral reform momentum was building up in Malaysia. At that time, it was still under Pakatan Harapan after the, the change of power in 2018. And there was a lot of anticipation for further electoral reform since they came into power on reform agenda. But I felt that there was not enough of rigorous informed debates. There was a need for critical engagement and diversity of views in the civil society. So that's when I thought of Dawn, because one of the proposals is to change the electoral system. And I know that Dawn is an expert on electoral system. And in the context of Malaysia, it's also important to look at the effects of electoral system on ethnic conflicts. And that's how I contacted Don. Great. That's really making a lot of sense. So maybe I can turn to Don. Why is it that Malaysia's politics needs reforming? I suppose most casual observers could suggest a couple of obvious hot and button issues like malapportionment, but other actually a wide range of things that need to be reformed or, or might well be reformed in Malaysia's political system. Well, yes. And, and by the way, I should add to Helen's answer that we convened a conference at ICMAS. We had very good people coming there. We also added some people afterwards. And the result was, I think, a very extraordinary group of contributors to this volume, both as Helen says, international and Malaysian analysts. And we have newcomers to to publication, or at least people without a lot of experience. And then we have some, how shall I put it, more seasoned scholars. You're right to point to malapportionment. Uh, Malapportionment shapes everything in the Malaysian electoral system, and it also shapes the prospects for electoral reform. As we went about this book, it became really clear that any electoral reform that doesn't tackle malapportionment and the proposals that have been made don't tackle malapportionment. They were content to, uh, they, they thought, yeah, I believe, that uh, malapportionment is a, is a very hard nut to crack in Malaysia, and they were content to try and, and reform the system without doing that. But malapportionment is one of the, the great problems in Malaysian electoral politics. And the other is the position of the Electoral Commission. And you'll see that there's a chapter in the book by a member of the Electoral Commission who is also 
a, a former ICMAS academic and very distinguished one in Malaysia, uh, Faisal Hazis, in which he proposes a commission that has more capacity and more independence. Both are important. Malaysian commissions very much under the thumb of the prime minister's office. There are now some good people on it, like Faisal, uh, but it isn't, it isn't really fully reformed and it desperately needs it. There are other aspects, too. There are some people who think the system of first-past-the-post has problems that should be remedied by some changes in the, act, in the electoral system. And what, one of the problems that has arisen is that oftentimes the party with fewer votes manages to win, a, and fewer than a majority, manages to win a majority of seats and may even win a majority of seats with fewer votes than the opposition does. So there was a proposal for a proportional electoral system, which probably wouldn't solve this problem at all certainly wouldn't solve the problem of inter-ethnic conciliation. But those are the main issues in, in Malaysia. But as you've pointed out, we've dealt with quite a lot of the issues. And our objective was to have a kind of 360-degree view of Malaysian electoral reform. that might also be a model for other countries that wanted to deal with electoral reform in a comprehensive way. Right. Yeah. No, these are obviously striking features of the book, both the range of contributors, the number of different topics that are engaged with. It's really a, an attempt to offer all kinds of perspectives on this interrelated set of issues. And we're not going to be able to talk about all 11 chapters in this podcast, but maybe I could ask each of you to talk about one chapter that you found particularly illuminating or salient or that you'd like to introduce to our Nordic Asia podcast audience. Helen, is there a particular chapter you'd like to tell us about to give us a bit of a flavor of what's going on in this book? I think Dawn's chapter is quite an interesting one. You know, uh, when we study about electoral system and their impact, usually the scholars may not be familiar with a particular country. So it is very hard for, and we know that electoral system can have all sorts of consequences. So in a way, it's a good match that Don is familiar both with Malaysian politics as well as electoral system. And that's the unique thing about that chapter, whereby he discussed the issues at hand based on the knowledge on both the electoral system itself and also Malaysian politics. So I thought that that is a particularly precious chapter because it provides some sort of guidelines for people who are concerned about the issue to make a judgment based on the information provided. Great. And to be clear for prospective readers of the book, I think you're talking, Helen, about Chapter 8, Electoral System Reform in the, in the second part of the book. Yes. Which gives an overview of that topic more broadly. Don, is there a particular chapter that you'd like to highlight? Well, there are two that I can highlight very briefly. The chapter on malapportionment, which is written by Kai Oswald from the University of British Columbia, who was a world-class expert on malapportionment, shows exactly how malapportioned the Malaysian system is. It's one of the world's most malapportioned systems, certainly one of Southeast Asia's most malapportioned system, perhaps the most. And he also discusses what kind of politics would have to emerge in order to get the malapportionment reform, because, of course, parties that benefit from it tend to have vested interests in preserving malapportionment. Those party, alas, one of those parties is, is a, in the current government. So we don't anticipate that malapportionment will be reformed dramatically in the, in the near future, but he specifies precisely how the malapportionment affects results and also speculates in an intelligent and informed way about what it would take to revise it. The other one I want to point to is, again, the chapter I mentioned earlier by Faisal Hazis on the Electoral Commission, where he discusses what kinds of protections commissioners would need against arbitrary dismissal. 
and how to remove the Electoral Commission from the Prime Minister's office, where its responsibility is now lodged, both of which affect its independence. And he also discusses what might be necessary to enhance its capacity. It's a very thoroughgoing discussion based on quite a lot of comparative evidence about how you might want to alter the responsibilities of an Electoral Commission to make it both more capable and more independent. That's great. Yeah. So those two chapters that you're referring to, chapter six, Chaos Falls chapter about malapportionment, and Faisal has has this chapter about electoral administrative reform. They just stand out as sort of seminal chapters within the book in terms of focusing on really, really important issues that go to the core of the political problems with the electoral system. Maybe I can ask both of you about a couple of other changes that recently got implemented that do illustrate the potential for effecting some sort of electoral reform in Malaysia. One of those was the introduction in 2022, right before the GE15, the election that took place in November, of new anti-hopping laws, as they're they're termed in Malaysia. That's the focus of Chapter 4 by Wilson Tazy Verne and Jacqueline Neo. Can you say something about the significance of those anti-hopping laws? Sure. I think the anti-hopping law was actually not even on the reform agenda of the the so-called electoral movement, electoral reform movement. But it arose because of the changing political situation, whereby due to the collapse of the federal government, there was an attempt to sort of buy off or threaten certain members of parliament to cross the floor so that an alternative majority could be formed. But the whole thing was so disgusting to the voters that there was a widespread disapproval of the issue. And because of that, and because over the last few years, we have as many prime ministers as the number of years they were in government. So it seems to both sides that it's important that their own members would not be sort of stolen, inverted comma, by the opposite side. And hence, uh, it creates certain popular will and also political will for the law to be passed. And it is uh, very important because after the last general election last year, it is precisely because of the existence of this anti-hopping law that the current government can get a, some semblance of political stability. So it was a very timely reform that came about because of circumstances. Yes, a very interesting development. You've had these, as you say, revolving door prime ministers with uh, different administrations coming and going, and the revolving door prime ministers often accompanied by mass departures from one party to another of different members of parliament. So the attempts to put a break on that and make it more difficult for this party switching to go on are really quite a significant change. You know, even before all of this chaotic coming and going in political parties from 2018 to the present, party hopping was a very serious problem in terms of bribery, because if you had a bare majority or a majority that wasn't up to the two-thirds standard, for example, for changing the constitution, and you wanted to solidify your majority, you began to buy off people. I've heard in interviews of some astronomical sums that were offered to people in certain circumstances in order to uh, secure their change of party affiliation in order to enhance a a majority. 
it's a perennial problem when government is, is afraid that its majority isn't adequate to do what it wants to do during its term of office. And I should say, by the way, what Helen said is right, that a lot of the reform impetus of recent years bubbles up from the public. This is also quite new. Malaysia is a country with a very strong party system and a very weak civil society on the whole, and a civil society that has been traditionally divided among ethnic groups rather than across ethnic civil society. But in this case, not just the anti-hopping law, but the electoral reform in general, proposals bubbled up from the civil society and from a group called Bersi, which means clean, which has been in existence for many years, but which is really, with respect to the electoral system proposals, really hit its stride in putting something on the public agenda that couldn't be ignored and produced actually a, a government-sponsored electoral reform commission with Bersi members, among others, appointed to the commission. This is really You'd have to go back pretty far, I think, in Malaysian history to think about something like this. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anything in which civil society played such an important role all the way back to independence. Now, I may have missed something, but in my view, this is, this is pretty much a, a new development. Whether it can be extended to other fields, I really don't know at this stage of the game, but it's quite remarkable that it went this far. Yeah, I think to continue with what Don say. The civil society, especially Brussels, had played a big role in terms of creating awareness and empowering the voters for electoral change. For instance, their first demonstration coincided or rather happened just before the 2008 general election. And this had an impact on the electoral outcome. And the result was also a surprise for many because the opposition gained strength during the election, which sets off this momentum for the fall of the ruling government. So in that sense, we need to give credit to Brussels for pushing for electoral reform and creating sort of a momentum, popular momentum. And we have a chapter on this too. And it's a very important context to understand if we want to understand issues related to electoral reform and democracy in Malaysia. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's another example of what Don was just talking about, a, a reform that seems to come from the grassroots that I must admit I was rather interested in. I was able to go to Malaysia for a couple of weeks in the run-up to the election. And during that trip, I met some young activists who've been involved in this campaign for under 18, a successful campaign to lower the voting age from 21 to 18, which involved amending the Malaysian constitution. It's mentioned in passing in the book, but not in, in great detail. But I was just fascinated that Again, it seemed like a relatively small group of activists could successfully mobilize a campaign and win over support from a broad range of political parties to make an important change and a, a very timely and much needed change to Malaysia's constitution. I don't know if either of you have thoughts about the Undi 18 campaign and what that tells us about your big themes of electoral reform and democracy in Malaysia. I think the change came about because of this interaction between political change, which brought about a government who came into power on the back of reform agenda. So they were sort of having, facing immense pressure to deliver. And so with civil society pushing for it, I think they even co-opted those from Brussels to be part of the preparation or discussion on electoral reform. So there was this synergy between civil society and uh, reform-minded government. But I must also point out that sometimes what the civil society propose may not be realized in the way they want it to be. For instance, just now we're talking about anti-hopping law. 
I think Rousseau was pushing for um, recall election rather than anti-hopping law. But I think there was a lot of reservation regarding recall election. And um, the lawmakers, they preferred to adopt uh, one version of the anti-hopping law. So it's interesting to see that in electoral reform, sometimes the outcome could be quite different from what the activists hoped for or even the government hoped for. Absolutely. Don, did you have any thoughts on the 18? No, I think uh, Helen has covered it very well. And, and uh, I wasn't in Malaysia at the time that that issue was raised. So my knowledge of it is a bit thinner. That's fine. Okay. So when we look at the title of the book, it's not just a book about electoral reform, but letters in red on the cover and democracy. So how does the democracy fit into the electoral reform piece? It's quite easy to have discussions about electoral reform that, dare I say, can descend into technical questions. It all seems to be matters of law, matters of implementation, institutional politics. So what about the democracy that underpins these institutional and regulatory changes? Well, I would say that the electoral system proposal was intended to improve the democracy or enhance the democracy in two, in two different ways. One I've referred to already, and that is the problem with first past the post that sometimes arises and has arisen several times in Malaysia, that a party with fewer than 50% of the vote gets more than 50% of the seats and may even get fewer votes than the losing party does. And that proposal was designed to solve that problem. But in fact, the proposal was for list system proportional representation using the states as constituencies. But since the states are badly malapportioned, the results would reflect the malapportionment. So I think from this standpoint, the democratic objective was not aptly realized by the proposal had the proposal been adopted. And I think the proposal doesn't stand much of a chance of being adopted because most political parties in Malaysia are a little bit averse to the list system proportional representation. On top of that, proportional representation in Malaysia would proliferate parties. And Malaysia already has a lot of parties. So many, in fact, it's sometimes difficult to know after the election who's going to be able to form a government because there's a multiplicity of coalitions that are, that are possible. And finally, the idea was also that given the discontent among some ethnic minorities, if list system proportional representation were adopted, various parties could run on their own. They wouldn't have to run as preformed coalitions. And then they would negotiate to form a government after the fact of the election. And the hope was then that the minorities could use their electoral strength, the number of seats that they had to offer in order to form a government. And the price of that would be a conciliatory policies. But in fact, we have lots of evidence from other countries where minorities are essential to forming governments that they don't necessarily get the concessions that they want. And majorities in the next election, if they're able to form governments without the minority parties, go back to the status quo ante. So I think what I'm trying to say is that this particular proposal for electoral system reform wasn't apt for the purposes for which it was intended. But that's not to say that electoral reform in general is or should be doomed in Malaysia. One other point about democracy that I might make, by the way, we've now had in Malaysia in the last, well, really four years, two peaceful changes of government by elections. And for those readers who are familiar with Samuel Huntington's book on democratic reform called The Third Wave of Democratization, he proposes that you know that there's been a qualitative change in democracy when there have been two peaceful changes of government through elections. He calls that the two turnover rule. And it shows that elections are the, what he calls the only game in town. Well, we've had the two turnover rule in Malaysia, and we'll see if that other indicators uh, of full democracy follow. Malaysia has usually been stigmatized in the literature as being 
a competitive authoritarian system or alternatively a, a semi-democracy. And we'll see whether the Freedom House and Polity and the other surveys that rank democracies change their ratings of Malaysia to reflect the fact that it's complied now with the two turnover rule. Yes, I'm afraid you're bringing me inevitably to asking you questions about the latest general election, G15, which took place in November last year. And the outcome of that election is clearly open to multiple interpretation. For some, this is a government of national unity, which brings together previously conflictual parties in the same government. For others, this is a rather problematic example of a new term I learned recently, promiscuous power sharing, parties that really don't have very much in common pragmatically and opportunistically deciding that they should get together. Do you think that the formation of this latest government is an indication of democratic progress? I guess I'm asking you the question that uh, would be a question for those Freedom House and other international analysts, or do you think that this latest administration is a step backwards? Well, I think this experience helps the voter to be more mature in terms of their expectations. I think for me, it's a progress in general, not on this unity government per se, but looking at the political development since uh, 2018, because we had had, after the fall of the Pakatan government, we had had two more government which was covered together also between two coalitions which are strange bedfellows. So this is not new, even though they were done post-election. And I think looking at the three combination, actually this current government is probably the more compatible one in the sense that previously in the two previous government, all the coalitions that came together was relying on so-called Malay electorate. So it is very hard for them to work together in the sense that when they are thinking of competing in the future in a general election, they are mutually sort of competitors. So there was a lot of politicking going on, despite the fact that they were the government. Whereas in the current government, because the Pakatan Harapan has a weaker Malay support, which can be provided by Barisan National, so they could work much more cooperatively because they felt that they need each other. The only problem is that the president of AMNO is still facing numerous charges for corruption and he has actually been called into defence at the stage of defence, meaning that the prosecutor has proven the prima facie case against him and he has to defend himself. So having a deputy prime minister is in this situation uh, really problematic. So, yeah, I mean, the way forward is not clear, but all I can see is Malaysian politics is changing and changing very fast. And so far, we had some risk. At one point in time, one prime minister wanted to declare emergency and, you know, suspend the parliament to be able to rule for a long time, but he was not able to do so in the end. So I hope the trend of progress will continue. It's very unpredictable at the moment as we are facing the upcoming state elections and so on. But I think in general, at the moment, we are hoping for the best. Right. Yeah, maybe I can frame the question a little bit differently and perhaps Don might respond to this version of it. So G15 also resulted in Anwar Ibrahim, who for many people was synonymous with the cause of reform 
the long-term adversary of UMNO and its supposedly problematic grip on power in Malaysia, he finally became prime minister. So does the fact that this leading reformer has become prime minister mean that the Anwar government should be expected to make further electoral reforms more likely? Well, I think to answer that question, you have to go back to the 2018 election of a government that fell in early 2020. And that government was headed by Mahadir with Anwar as his uh, designated successor. But unfortunately, Mahadir didn't turn over to Anwar, so he didn't have a good test. But in any case, that government did. Even under Mahadir, it, it proposed a number of important reforms, all of which were beaten back by mass protests organized by UMNO, which was then in opposition, the United Malays National Organization, and the Islamist party, PAS. And uh, what that means is that there are lessons that were learned, and that is that reform is not going to be easy in Malaysia, especially democratic reform and especially reform of civil liberties and so on, because there will be opposition to it. The opponents will take the opportunity to convince especially the Malay population that the reforms are not in their interest. So there'll be a lot of caution that Anwar is going to exercise during this time, and he's going to have to figure out a way in which to get some of these reforms done. The only other thing I would add to what Helen said, which is a very good elucidation of what the current situation is, is that the current government has the Pakatan, as you've mentioned, in the lead position. The deputy prime minister, as she mentioned, comes from UMNO, the United Malays National Organization. And the third major component is the DAP, the Democratic Action Party, which is de facto a Chinese party, although it very much aspires, or a non-Malay party, although very much aspires to have Malay support as well. And in some elections, certainly has had Malay support from various, in various constituencies. UMNO has considered in the past the Democratic Action Party to be its bete noire, its favorite whipping boy, and can blame the DAP and previous Pakatan government for all of the ills that it attributed to, the, to that previous government. But the acid test really is now, can the DAP and UMNO get along in the same coalition? And can they modulate the hostility that UMNO particularly has shown for the DAP? The DAP hasn't quite reciprocated it, but it certainly has reciprocated it in some ways over the many years. And can those two live together? And well, if they can, and if they have amicable relations, and if they help each other get elected, more importantly, in various constituencies where one is running and the other isn't, is that going to change something fundamental about Malaysian ethnic politics? That is really a, a very important test, particularly if this government lasts a long time. Of course, it could all be upended because the deputy prime minister, as Helen said, is up on charges. And if his trial gets in the way of cooperation or if somebody else has to take charge of the party and is insecure in his base in the party, who knows what relations with the DAP will be. But I'll be watching the DAP UMNO relationship to see how that evolves over time, because it does bear considerably on inter-ethnic relations in Malaysia and on prospects for full democracy. Now, that's always a very interesting one. Don, you've already mentioned Samuel Huntington and the third wave, and perhaps we can just step back a little bit from Malaysia itself and think about a comparative and a regional context. There were many countries in and around Southeast Asia that made democratic transitions in the 90s and in the decade or so that followed. And we're seeing many of those transitions faltering, most conspicuously in Cambodia and Myanmar, but perhaps to some degree also in Indonesia, the Philippines, and, and then, of course, Thailand, the country I, I myself study most about. 
Where do you think Malaysia is in all this? Are there signs of deepening of democracy, reformism actually doing better in Malaysia than it is in other parts of Southeast Asia? Or is Malaysia part of this general rolling back? Or is it somewhere in the middle? Or do we not know yet? If either of you would like to have a go at that, or maybe both of you could say something on this one. I think Malaysia democratized slowly. Actually, a few years ago, I was about to sort of try to compare Malaysia with some East Asian countries and see what difference it makes which make it democratize so slowly. But lo and behold, it came about against popular expectations. But when I look back, the changes happen slowly but surely in the sense that you see that the reformacy movement at the end of last century, this desire for reform has already started. In the sense that before that, those who were dissatisfied with the so-called the regime was mainly from non-Malay population. But with the reformacy, it began even before that, there was telltale sign, but it was really a sign that enough of Malay middle class and popular class see that something needs to be changed. After half a century of uh, independence, Malaysia had not been able to have a um, change of government. And it was hard work because it was uh, almost a quarter of a century in the making before it happened. And still, we are in a turmoil. But I think that by doing it slowly, it seems to me that I can see a momentum. So even if it doesn't happen, it's a bit like 2008, there was a surprise. But 2013, still, it didn't happen, but it happened in 2018. So it is happening gradually. But we don't have the problem of Thailand with the royal family and military. And in effect, in the Malaysian case, I think the king had played even a positive role in terms of trying to nudge politicians who were power crazy to work together for the good of the country. So in that sense, I think, of course, Indonesia seems to have gone far ahead, but there are still a lot of other problems to be solved, such as corruption and so on. So, I mean, we don't know the future, but I do not think that Malaysia is very far behind in that sense. Yeah, I would say it's apples, oranges, peaches and pears. It's not just one thing or another. I think you could say, look, what are the three problems with democracy in this part of the world? Autocracy, minorities and rule of law. On the autocracy front, the Philippines seems to be doing rather better, even though the name of the president happens to be Marcos. Big surprise. But then it was very easy standard when you consider the comparisons with the previous regime. Thailand, of course, still has its problems with not just the monarchy, but with the military as well. And Malaysia's military is, is very definitely well governed, where, or at least well confined to the military sphere. Indonesia managed to confine the military to the military sphere, except for its business interests and ex except for its excesses in, in Papua. But Indonesia's had a little bit of slippage, especially with respect to Papua and treatment of its minorities. The Philippines also seems to be doing a little better with the moral problem in the South, although it hasn't really institutionalized the autonomy for the Moros. So I say it's a little bit up and a little bit down, depending on just exactly what you're focusing on. But the rule of law is a very important one. It tends to get neglected. And if I could do the comparison between Malaysia and Indonesia, it's absolutely day and night. Indonesia's constitutional court is an unpredictable court with it produces judgments that are not always, how shall I put it, supported very well by constitutional principles. 
The Malaysian courts, following Mahathir's purge of them in late 19, the mid, mid-1980s, were quite subservient to the politicians. In recent years, they have completely broken out of that subservience. If you want to talk about rule of law, I would say Malaysia is doing very well these days on rule of law compared to competitors, and especially compared to Indonesia, which is, as I say, has a more or less a non-functioning Supreme Court and a, uh, an unpredictable constitutional court. So it's very hard to draw blanket judgments, but field by field, I think it's easier to do comparisons. On the ethnic front, well, we'll see how Malaysia does. I think the big obstacle to democracy, full democracy in Malaysia really is the ethnic one. And that's why, as I say, the DAP UMNO relationship in the current government is so important. And we'll see how that pans out as divisive issues inevitably arise sooner or later. I tend to agree with Don about rule of law in Malaysia. I think it's comparatively much better. It is a difficult situation to manage. I agree with Don that ethnic issues could hold back further democratization, but it is something we need to deal with. Yeah. And I think the prospect to deal with it is never as good as now, but we will see how the current prime minister could resolve this. I think if there is someone who can resolve it, it's probably Anwar Ibrahim. But I don't know how you can get out of this. (laughs) Can I just add one little point? Just now you were asking about the importance of electoral reform to democracy. Yes. I think it is extremely important because uh, when we look at the election in 2013, there was a lot of contestation because of malapportionment. So even though the opposition won by popular vote, but they lost by the number of seats. And there was, I think, great dissatisfaction and unhappiness regarding this. And some even wanted to sort of take more radical action. But at that time, the chair of the Brussels was Ambiga. And she tried to sort of cool down the temperature and try to use other channels to channel this dissatisfaction. But if there is no electoral reform and when there is some sort of issues regarding the results that come out, it will damage the legitimacy, the political legitimacy of the government. And sometimes we know that if it's not well resolved, it could lead to something more serious. So in that sense, I think electoral reform to ensure that the electoral process and also the management of election is being managed properly is very, very important for democratization to happen further. Thank you so much, both Helen and Don, for joining me today to talk about your new book, Electoral Reform and Democracy in Malaysia, which we're very delighted to have published here at NIAS Press in 2023. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Duncan, to be able to share our thoughts. Thank you very much for the opportunity. We've enjoyed it, and we hope that uh, readers enjoy the book as well. Thank you. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen, and I've been talking to Helen Ting and Donald Horowitz, the editors of Electoral Reform and Democracy in Malaysia, out from Nias Press in 2023. An important book with a wide range of great contributors that helps us to gain a much deeper understanding of what's at stake in Malaysia's long-standing struggles for a reformed and more representative and democratic electoral system. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.